at Temple Square in Salt Lake City. This is the Saturday afternoon session of the 185th semi-annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with speakers selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. The music for this session is provided by a choir of primary children from stakes in the Riverton, Utah area. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, Second Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Our dear brothers and sisters, dear friends, we welcome you to the Saturday afternoon session of the 185th Semi-Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Thomas S. Monson, who presides at the conference, has asked that I conduct this session. We extend our greetings to all who are in attendance or who are participating by means of television, radio, or the Internet. We likewise welcome those who are viewing the proceedings in stake centers in various parts of the world where the conference is being carried by satellite transmission. We acknowledge the general authorities and the general officers who will be in attendance throughout the conference. The music for this session will be provided by a choir of primary children from stakes in the Riverton, Utah area, under the direction of Emily Wadley with Linda Margetts and Bonnie Gottlieb at the organ. The choir will open this meeting by singing Beautiful Savior. The invocation will then be offered by Elder Terence M. Vinson of the 70, President Henry B. Eyring, First Council of the First Presidency, will then present the general officers and area 70s of the church for a sustaining vote.
Our dear Heavenly Father, we gather as thy children here and throughout the world because we feel of thy love and we love thee. We are grateful for a prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, who knows thy voice so well, who responds to thy promptings and thy guidance. We are grateful for those who have been called as prophets, seers and revelators. We pray that they will feel of our love and our sustaining, not just now as we raise our hands, but throughout their ministry. We pray that thou bless those who speak to us, that they may be filled with thy spirit. We ask that thou help us to listen and to learn and to act on those things that we feel as a result of what we are taught by thy spirit today. This is our prayer in the name of our beloved Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, President Monson has asked that I now present to you the general authorities, Area 70s, and general auxiliary presidents of the Church for your sustaining vote. It is proposed that we sustain Thomas Spencer Monson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Henry Benyon Eyring as first counselor in the First Presidency, and Dieter Friedrich Uchtdorf as the second counselor in the First Presidency. Those in favor may manifest it. Those opposed, if any, may manifest it. The vote has been noted. It is proposed that we sustain Russell M. Nelson as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the following as members of that quorum. Russell M. Nelson, Don H. Oakes, M. Russell Ballard, Robert D. Hales, Jeffrey R. Holland, David A. Bednar, Quentin L. Cook, D. Todd Christofferson, Neil L. Anderson, and as new members of the Quorum of the Twelve, Ronald A. Rasband, Gary E. Stevenson, and Dale G. Renlin. Those in favor, please signify by the uplifted hand. Any opposed may so indicate. The vote has been noted. It is proposed that we sustain the counselors in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. All in favor, please manifest it. Contrary, if there be any, by the same sign. The vote has been noted. With their calls to serve as members of the Quorum of the Twelve, we hereby release Ronald A. Rasband as a member of the Presidency of the Seventy and Elder Rasband and Dale G. Renan as members of the First Quorum of Seventy. Those who wish to join in a vote of appreciation may so indicate. It is proposed that we release with appreciation for their devoted service Elder Don R. Clark as a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy and Elders Koichi Ayagi and Bruce A. Carlson as members of the Second Quorum of the Seventy and designate them as Emeritus General Authorities, those who wish to join with us in expressing gratitude for their excellent service, please manifest it. We also extend a release 
to Sergei Yokovalov as an Area 70. Those who wish to join us in expressing appreciation for his service, please so signify. At this time, we note the releases of Brother John S. Tanner as First Counselor in the Sunday School General Presidency and Brother Devin G. Durant as Second Counselor in the Sunday School General Presidency. As previously announced, Brother Tanner has been appointed to serve as President of BYU-Hawaii. All who wish to join us in expressing appreciation to these brethren for their service and devotion, please manifest it. Brother Devin G. Durant has now been called to serve as First Counselor in the Sunday School General Presidency and Brother Brian K. Ashton to serve as Second Counselor in the Sunday School General Presidency. All in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, if any. It is proposed that we sustain the other general authorities, Area 70s, and general auxiliary presidencies as presently constituted. All in favor, please manifest it. Those opposed, if any, the voting has been noted. We invite those who have opposed any of the proposals to contact their stake presidents. Brothers and sisters, we appreciate your faith and prayers in behalf of the leaders of the Church. We now ask the new members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles to take their places on the stand. They will have the opportunity to, to address us tomorrow morning. Thank you, President Eyring. We welcome you, brethren, to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and extend to you our love and support. We pray for you and your families. The Primary Children's Choir will now favor us with the medley of Search, Ponder, and Pray. And I think when I read that sweet story of old, after the singing, we will hear from Elders Robert D. Hales and Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles.
Much has been written and said about today's generation of young adults. Research shows that many resist organized religion. Many are in debt and unemployed. A majority like the idea of marriage, but many are reluctant to take that step. A growing number don't want children without the gospel and inspired guidance. Many are wandering in strange paths and losing their way. Fortunately, young adult members of the Church lag behind these worldly troubling trends, in part because they are blessed with the gospel plan. That eternal plan includes holding fast to the iron rod, cleaving to God's word and the word of his prophets. We need to tighten our grip on that rod that leads us back to him. Now is the day of choosing for all of us. As a boy, when I was about to make a poorly considered choice, my father sometimes would say, Robert, straighten up and fly right. You've been there. In the spirit of his plain talk, I would like to speak specifically to the youth, the noble youth and young adults. For my soul delighteth in the plainness that we may learn. You are living through a critical period of your life. The choices you make, mission, education, marriage, career, and service in the Church will shape your eternal destiny. This means you will always be looking ahead, looking to the future. As a pilot in the Air Force, I learned this principle. Never deliberately fly into a thunderstorm. I won't tell you how I found that out. (laughs) Instead, fly around it. Take another route or wait for the storm to clear before landing. Beloved young adult brothers and sisters, I want to help you fly right in the gathering storms of the last days. You are the pilots. You are responsible to think about the consequences of every choice you make. Ask yourself, if I make this choice, what is the worst thing that could happen? Your righteous choices will keep you from getting off course. Think of it. If you choose not to take a drink of alcohol, you'll never become an alcoholic. If you never choose to go into debt, you'll avoid the possibility of bankruptcy. One of the purposes of the scriptures is to show us how righteous people respond to temptation and evil. In short, they avoid it. Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. Lehi took his family and left Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph fled into Egypt to escape Herod's wicked plot. In every instance, Heavenly Father Warn these believers. Similarly, he will help us know whether to fight, flee, or go with the flow of our unfolding circumstances. 
He will speak to us through prayer. And when we pray, we will have the Holy Ghost who will guide us. We have the scriptures, the teaching of living prophets, patriarchal blessings, the counsel of inspired parents, priesthoods and auxiliary leaders, and above all, the still small voice of the Spirit. The Lord will always keep his promise. I will lead you along. The only question is, will we let ourselves be led? Will we hear his voice and the voice of his servants? I testify that if you are there for the Lord, he will be there for you. If you love him and keep his commandments, he will have his spirit to be with you and to guide you. Put your trust in that spirit which leadeth to do good. By this shall ye know all things pertaining to those things of righteousness. With those principles as a foundation, may I give you some practical counsel? Many of your generation are facing crushing debt. When I was a young adult, my stake president was an investment banker on Wall Street. He taught me, you are rich if you can live happily within your means. How can you do it? Pay your tithing and then save. When you earn more, save more. Don't compete with others to have expensive toys. Don't buy what you can't afford. Many young adults in the world are going into debt to get an education, only to find the cost of school is greater than they can repay. Seek out scholarships and grants. Obtain part-time employment, if possible, to help your own way. This will require some sacrifice, but it will help you succeed. Education prepares you for better employment opportunities. It puts you in a better position to serve and to bless those around you. It will set you on a path of lifelong learning. It will strengthen you to fight against ignorance and error. As Joseph Smith taught, knowledge does away with darkness, suspense, and doubt, for these cannot exist where knowledge is. In knowledge there is power. To be learned is good if they hearken unto the counsels of God. Education will prepare you for what is ahead, including marriage. Again, may I speak frankly? The track that leads to marriage passes through the terrain called dating. Dating is the opportunity for lengthy conversations. When you date, learn everything you can about each other. Get to know each other's families when possible. Are your goals compatible? Do you share the same feelings about the commandments, the Savior, the priesthood, the temple, parenting, callings in the Church, and serving others? Have you observed one another under stress, responding to success and failure, resisting anger and dealing with setbacks? Does the person you are dating tear others down or build them up? Is his or her attitude and language and the conduct 
what you would like to live with every day? That said, none of us marry perfection. We marry potential. The right marriage is not only about what I want, it's about what she wants, who's going to be my companion and needs me to be. Speaking plainly, please don't date all through your 20s just to have a good time, thus delaying marriage in favor of other interests and activities. Why? Because dating and marriage aren't final decisions. They're the gateway to where you ultimately want to go. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Your responsibility now is to be worthy of the person you want to marry. If you want to marry a wholesome, attractive, honest, happy, hardworking, spiritual person, be that kind of person. If you are that person and you are not married, be patient. Wait upon the Lord. I testify that the Lord knows your desires and loves you and your faithful devotion to Him. He has a plan for you, whether it be in this life or the next. Listen to His Spirit. Seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from His hand. In this life or the next, His promises will be fulfilled. If you are prepared, ye shall not fear. If you don't have abundant resources, don't worry. A wonderful church member recently told me, I didn't raise my children on money, I raised them on faith. There's a great truth to that. Begin exercising your faith in every area of your life. If you don't, you will suffer what I would call faith atrophy. The very strength needed to exercise your faith will be diminished. So exercise your faith every day, and you will wax stronger and stronger and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ. To be ready for marriage, make certain you are worthy to take the sacrament and hold a temple recommend. Go to the temple regularly. Serve in the Church. In addition to Church callings, follow the example of the saviors who simply went about doing good. Now you may have serious questions about the choices ahead. In my adult years, I sought counsel from my parents and from faithful, trusted advisors. One was a priesthood leader. Another was a teacher who believed in me. Both said to me, If you want my counsel, be prepared to take it. I have understood what that means. Prayerfully select mentors who have your spiritual well-being at heart. Be careful about taking advice from your peers. If you want more than you now have, reach up, not across. Remember, no one can reach upward for you. Only your faith and prayers will cause you to lift yourself and have the mighty change of heart. Only your resolve to be obedient can change your life. Because of the Savior's atoning sacrifice for you, the power is in you. You have your agency, and you have 
strong testimonies if you are obedient and you can follow the Spirit that guides you. Recently, a young filmmaker said he felt he was part of a generation of prodigals, a generation looking for hope and joy and fulfillment, but looking in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. In the Savior's parable of the prodigal son, the son had many blessings awaiting him, but before he could claim them, he had to look closely at his life, his choices, and his circumstances. The miracle that happened next is described in the scriptures with a simple phrase, He came to himself. May I encourage you to come to yourself in the Church when important decisions must be made. We often hold council meetings. Family councils serve a similar purpose. You may want to conduct what I'll call a personal council. After prayer, spend some time alone. Think about what is ahead. Ask yourself, what areas of my life do I want to strengthen so I can strengthen others? What do I want to be? Where do I want to be a year from now, two years from now? What choices do I need to make to get there? Just remember, you are a pilot and you are in charge. I testify that as you come to yourself, your Heavenly Father will come to you. By comforting hand of His Holy Spirit, He will help you along. I bear my testimony that God lives. I bear my special witness that the Savior loves you. Shall we not go on in His great cause? Go forward, not backward. As you follow Him, He will strengthen and uphold you. He will bring you up to your highest home. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, Elder Hales. You're remarkable. And may I join with all of you in welcoming Elder Rasband, Elder Stevenson, and Elder Rendlin and their wives to the sweetest association they could possibly imagine. Prophesying of the Savior's Atonement, Isaiah wrote, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. A majestic Latter-day vision emphasized that Jesus came into the world to bear the sins of the world. Both ancient and modern scripture testify that he redeemed them and bore them and carried them all the days of old. A favorite hymn pleads with us to hear your great deliverer's voice. Bear, born, carry, deliver. These are powerful, heartening, messianic words. They convey help and hope for safe movement from where we were to where we need to be, but cannot get without assistance. 
These words also connote burden, struggle, and fatigue, words most appropriate in describing the mission of Him who, at unspeakable cost, lifts us up when we have fallen, carries us forward when strength is gone, delivers us safely home when safety seems far beyond our reach. My Father hath sent me, he said, that I might be lifted up upon the cross, that as I have been lifted up, even so should men be lifted up to me. But can you hear in this language another arena of human endeavor in which we use words like bear and born, carry and lift, labor and deliver? As Jesus said to John, while in the very act of atonement, so he says to us all, Behold thy mother. Today I declare from this pulpit what has been said here before, that no love in mortality comes closer to approximating the pure love of Jesus Christ than the selfless love a devoted mother has for her child. When Isaiah, speaking messianically, wanted to convey Jehovah's love, he invoked the image of a mother's devotion. Can a woman forget her sucking child, he asks? How absurd, he implies, though not as absurd as thinking Christ will ever forget us. This kind of resolute love suffereth long and is kind, seeketh not her own, but beareth all things, believeth all things, endureth all things. Most encouraging of all, such fidelity never faileth. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, Jehovah said, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. So too say our mothers. You see, it's not only that they bear us, but they continue bearing with us. It's not only the prenatal carrying, but the lifelong carrying that makes mothering such a staggering feat. Of course, there are heartbreaking exceptions. But most mothers know intuitively, instinctively, that this is a sacred trust of the highest order. The weight of that realization, especially on young maternal shoulders, can be very daunting. A wonderful young mother recently wrote to me, and I quote from her letter, How is it that a human being can love a child so deeply that you will willingly give up a major portion of your freedom for it? How can mortal love be so strong that you voluntarily subject yourself to responsibility, vulnerability, anxiety, and heartache and just keep coming back for more of the same? What kind of mortal love can make you feel once you have a child that your life is never, ever to be your own again?
Maternal love, she says, has to be divine. There is no other explanation for such feelings. What mothers do is an essential element of Christ's work, she concludes. Knowing that should be enough to tell us the impact of such love will range between unbearable and transcendent over and over and over again until with the safety and salvation of the very last child on earth we can then say with Jesus Father I've finished the work which thou gavest me to do with the elegance of that letter echoing in our minds let me share three experiences reflecting the majestic influence of mothers witnessed in my ministry in just the past few weeks. My first account is a cautionary one, reminding us that not every maternal effort has a storybook ending, at least not immediately. That reminder stems from my conversation with a beloved friend of more than 50 years who was dying away from the church he knew in his heart to be true. No matter how much I tried to comfort him, I could not seem to bring him peace. Finally, he leveled with me. Jeff, he said, however painful it is going to be for me to stand before God, I cannot bear the thought of standing before my mother. The gospel and her children meant everything to her. I have broken her heart. And that is breaking mine. Now I'm absolutely certain that upon his passing, his mother received my friend with open, loving arms. That's what parents do. But the cautionary portion of this story is that children can break their mother's heart. Here, too, we see the comparison with the divine. I need not remind us that Jesus died of a broken heart, one weary and worn out from bearing the sins of the world. So in any moment of temptation, may we behold our mother as well as our Savior and spare them both the sorrow of our sinning. Secondly, I speak of a young man who entered the mission field worthily, but by his own choice returned home early due to same-sex attraction and some trauma he experienced in that regard. He was still worthy, but his faith was at crisis level. His emotional burden grew ever heavier, and his spiritual pain was more and more profound. He was by turns hurt, confused, angry, and desolate. His mission president, his stake president, his bishop spent countless hours searching and weeping and blessing him as they held on to him. But much of his wound was so personal 
that he kept at least parts of it beyond their reach. The beloved father in this story poured his entire soul into helping this child. But his very demanding employment circumstance meant that often the long, dark nights of the soul were faced by just this boy and his mother. Day and night, first for weeks, then for months, that turned into years, they sought healing together. Through periods of bitterness, mostly his but sometimes hers, and unending fear, mostly hers but sometimes his, she bore. There's that beautiful, burdensome word again. She bore to her son her testimony of God's power, of his church, but especially of his love for this child. In the same breath, she testified of her own uncompromised, undying love for him as well. To bring together these two absolutely crucial, essential pillars of her very existence, the gospel of Jesus Christ and her family, she poured out her soul in prayer endlessly. She fasted and wept. She wept and fasted, then listened and listened and listened as this son repeatedly told her of how his heart was breaking. Thus, she carried him again. Only this time, it was not for nine months. This time, she thought that laboring through the battered landscape of his despair would take forever. But with the grace of God, her own tenacity, and the help of scores of church leaders, friends, family members, and professionals, this importuning mother has seen her son come home to the promised land. Sadly, we acknowledge that such a blessing does not, or at least has not yet, come to all parents who anguish over a wide variety of their children's circumstances. But here there was hope. And, I must say, this son's sexual orientation did not somehow miraculously change. No one assumed it would. But little by little, his heart changed. He started back to church. He chose to partake of the sacrament willingly and worthily. He again obtained a temple recommend and accepted a call to serve as an early morning seminary teacher where he was wonderfully successful. And now, after five years, he has at his own request and with the church's considerable assistance re-entered the mission field to complete his service to the Lord. I have wept over the courage, integrity, and determination of this young man and his family to work things out and help him keep his faith. He knows he owes much to many, 
But he knows he owes the most to two messianic figures in his life. Two who bore him and carried him and labored with him and delivered him. His Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his determined, redemptive, absolutely saintly mother. Lastly, this from the rededication of the Mexico City Temple just three weeks ago. It was there with President Irene that we saw our beloved friend, Lisa Tuttle Piper, stand in that moving dedicatory service. But she stood with some difficulty because with one arm she was holding up her beloved but severely challenged daughter Dora, who is in this audience today, while with the other she was trying to manipulate Dora's dysfunctional right hand. So this limited but eternally precious daughter of God could wave a white handkerchief and with groans intelligible only to herself and the angels of heaven could cry out, Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna to God and the Lamb. To all of our mothers everywhere, past, present, or future, I say thank you. Thank you for giving birth, for shaping souls, for forming character, and for demonstrating the pure love of Christ. To Mother Eve, to Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, to Mary of Nazareth, and to a mother in heaven, I say thank you for your crucial role in fulfilling the purposes of eternity. To all mothers in every circumstance, including those who struggle and all will, I say, be peaceful. Believe in God and yourself. You are doing better than you think you are. In fact, you are saviors on Mount Zion. And like the master you follow, your love never faileth. I can pay no higher tribute to anyone. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brothers and sisters, after the singing of the congregation, we will hear from elders Bradley D. Foster, Hugo Montoya, and Vern P. Stanfill of the Seventy. And now, on a signal from the conductor, the congregation will join their voices and stand and sing with the choir, Come, Follow Me.
This is the 185th semi-annual general conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is the 185th semi-annual general conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City. Thank you to this beautiful choir. It's to the children of the church I'd like to speak today. Brothers and sisters, we're engaged in a battle with the world. In the past, the world competed for our children's energy and their time. Today, it fights for their identity and their mind. Many loud and prominent voices are trying to define who our children are and what they should believe. We cannot let society give our family a makeover in the image of the world. We must win this battle. Everything depends on it. The children of the Church sing a song that teaches them about their real identity. I am a child of God. He has sent me here, has given me an earthly home with parents. Then the children's plea to us, lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me to understand his words before it grows too late.
President Russell M. Nelson taught us in our last general conference that from here on out, we must be engaged in intentional parenting. These are perilous times. But the good news is God knew this would be the case and has provided counsel in the scriptures for us to know how to help our children and our grandchildren. In the Book of Mormon, the Savior appeared to the Nephites. He gathered the little children around him. He blessed them, prayed for them, and wept over them. Then he said to the parents, Behold your little ones. The word behold means to look and see. What did Jesus want the parents to see in their little ones? Did he want them to catch a glimpse of their children's divine potential? As we look at our children and our grandchildren today, what does the Savior want us to see in them? Do we recognize that our children are the largest group of investigators of the Church? What must we do to bring about their lasting conversion? In the book of Matthew, the Savior teaches us about lasting conversion. A large group of people had gathered near the Sea of Galilee to hear him teach. He sensed that they weren't understanding his message, so he proceeded to teach them using a parable. On this occasion, Jesus told a story about planting seeds, the parable of the sower. In explaining this to his disciples and ultimately to us, he said, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. The message for parents is clear. There is a difference between hearing and understanding. If our children merely hear but do not understand the gospel, then the door is left open for Satan to remove these truths from their hearts. However, if we can help them grow roots of deep conversion, then in the heat of the day, when this life gets tough, and it will, the gospel of Jesus Christ can give them something within that cannot be affected from without. So how can we assure that these powerful truths are not just going in one ear and out the other? Hearing words just might not be enough. We all know that words evolve. Sometimes we say our words and they hear their words. You might say to your young children, you sound like a broken record. They'd probably respond with, Dad, what's a record? (laughs) Our Heavenly Father wants us to succeed because really, after all, they were His children before they were ours. As parents in Zion, you've received the gift of the Holy Ghost. As you pray for guidance, it will show unto you all things what you should do in teaching your children. As you develop processes of learning, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it unto the hearts of the children. I can think of no better example of helping someone gain understanding than the story of Helen Keller. She was blind and deaf and lived in a world that was dark and quiet. A teacher named Ann Sullivan came to help her. How would you teach a child that can't even see or hear you? For a long time, Ann struggled to connect with Helen. One day around noon, she took her out to the water pump. She put one of Helen's hands under the water spout and began to pump the water. Anne then spelled out the word, W-A-T-E-R, on Helen's other hand. Nothing happened. So she tried it again, W-A-T-E-R. Helen squeezed Anne's hand because she began to understand. By nightfall, she had learned 30 words. Within a matter of months, she had learned 600 words and was able to read Braille. 
Helen Keller went on to earn a college degree and help change the world for people who couldn't see or hear. It was a miracle, and her teacher was a miracle worker, just like you will be parents. I saw the results of another great teacher while serving as the president of a single adult stake at BYU-Idaho. That experience changed my life. On one particular Tuesday evening, I interviewed a young man named Pablo from Mexico City who wanted to serve a mission. I asked him about his testimony and his desires to serve. His answers to my questions were perfect. Then I asked about his worthiness. His answers were exact. In fact, they were so good, I wondered, maybe he doesn't understand what I'm asking him. So I rephrased the questions and determined that he knew exactly what I meant and was completely honest. I was so impressed with this young man that I asked him, Pablo, who was it that's helped you come to this point in your life, standing so uprightly before the Lord? He said, my dad. I said, Pablo, tell me your story. Pablo continued, when I was nine, my dad took me aside and said, Pablo, I was nine once too. Here's some things you may come across. You'll see people cheating in school. You might be around people who swear. You'll probably have days when you don't want to go to church. Now, when these things happen or anything else that troubles you, I want you to come and talk to me, and I'll help you get through that, and then I'll tell you what comes next. So, Pablo, what did he tell you when you were 10? Well, he warned me about pornography and dirty jokes. What about when you were 11, I asked? He cautioned me about things that would be addictive and reminded me about using my agency. Here was a father, year after year, line upon line, here a little and there a little, who helped his son not only hear but understand. Because Pablo's father knew our children learn when they're ready to learn, not just when we're ready to teach them. I was proud of Pablo when we submitted his missionary application that night. But I was even more proud of Pablo's dad. When I drove home that night, I asked myself, what kind of father will Pablo be? And the answer was crystal clear. He'll be just like his dad. Jesus said, the son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do. This is the pattern of how Heavenly Father blesses his children from generation to generation. As I continued to think about my experience with Pablo, I felt sad because my four daughters were grown and the nine grandchildren I had at the time didn't live nearby. I then then thought, how could I ever help them the way Pablo's father helped him? Had too much time gone by? As I offered a prayer in my heart, the Spirit 